Hey, Rock and Roll Bedheads, it's Brian, and have we got an opportunity for you. You want to come party in our hometown and see some of the biggest names in rock and roll. Foo Fighters, Green Day, Tool, Avenged Sevenfold, Godsmack, Pantera, Queens of the Stone Age, Weezer, Limp Bizkit, Megadeth, Rancid, Turnstile. I'm just reading the names that are in big print. This is the biggest rock festival in America. It is called Louder Than Life. It happens in Louisville, Kentucky, September 21st through the 24th of this year at the Highland Festival Grounds. And we've got your tickets. All you've got to do is go to our website, wearethestoryguys.com. Right there in the left-hand column, you're going to see a link for Win Louder Than Life tickets. Click that link, fill out a little bit of information, and let us know, out of all those bands I mentioned in the many, 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 many that I I didn't, who are the bands you most want to see? Name five, send us your five, and you will be in the running to win two four-day general admission passes to this rock and roll fest. I'll make it even easier than that. Just go into the show notes right now and click the link that says win louder than life tickets. It's that easy. Thanks for listening. Thanks to louder than life and Danny Wimmer presents. And now let's keep thinking and talking about rock and roll. It's time for the show. Don't go to sleep. Don't go to sleep. Do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You've lost half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. And hey, it's Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories, your home for the rumor innuendo and all the things you want to know about rock and roll but maybe we're scared to ask. Have we ever discussed on this show, or even not on this show, just as pals, your first like full-on celebrity crush? Who was it? Uh, it's Drew Barrymore. We never talked about this. Oh, no, I yeah. bought her. I bought her like autobiography in high school. That came out like in ninety. She was in that Stephen King thing that had the short stories, oh, and she yeah. was she was in one of those yeah. where they they would kidnap the family and and put him in this electrical thing to get him to quit smoking. That was like <laughs> we have a really interesting method here. And it shows they open the curtain and it's like uh, 96 teardrops starts playing. And my <laughs> recollection of 96 teardrops is a family getting electrocuted because this fucking prick won't stop smoking cigarettes. Dude, I had a huge crush on Drew Barrymore. Then uh, went on a rider yeah. oh, because yeah, yeah, yeah. our ages or whatever in every movie that yeah, she was this- in. But I... But I'm from the 80s. I was so gonna say this is full on Gen X. You're you're fully yeah. embracing your generation. So I had I had two Heathers. I had Heather Thomas, Heather Locklear, mm-hmm. and then all that music and everything I watched on MTV, like that was for teenage boys, dude. Right, right, right. And and so for me, I think we've probably talked about this because we talk about my favorite movie all the time, that thing you do. Part of the reason that very quickly became my favorite movie was not only was it about rock and roll and a a version of rock and roll that I understood from listening to the oldie station with my dad, it had and featured the girlfriend of the lead singer who eventually falls for the happy-go-lucky drummer. Her name is Faye, and she is played by Liv Tyler. Yeah, and that's your crush. Weird. Still, still. And this, this is really the first time, I mean, like, there is, like, Liv Tyler when it comes to celebrities, and then there's everybody else. And everybody else is, is just way behind her in my book. Was she in something before that? Is that the first time you saw her? It was the first time I saw her because the things she was in before that were not appropriate for me, especially as a 14-year-old kid living in a preacher's house. And I don't remember ever having that experience before, except maybe I did have some sort of affinity for Anna Klumsky in the movie My Girl. Which I rewatched recently with uh, and accidentally let my eight year old niece in the room 
uh, not realizing she was there. And she, I was eight when I saw it the first time, and it devastated me. And I was right. Been, it's a sad movie. It's yeah. so sad. And I had been telling my daughter because we were watching it together. And we were staying at my brother's house, and heads up. And I had said, "Hey." This was really sad for me when I was eight. I didn't think about the eight-year-old that wandered in halfway through and watched the back half. And when that poor kid dies in the most melodramatic way possible, uh, my poor niece hit the floor. I mean, she just, she was inconsolable in her nightgown, full-on puppy dog tears, and it was heartbreaking, and I felt really awful about it. But I I loved Anna Klumski from that, but I was like 10 when that movie came out, so it was more like I wanted to hang out with her and less like... I want to Brian, that did that weekend. Did anyone tell you what a shitty uncle you were for <laughs> letting a kid? Yeah, get, my brother. <laughs> forget, get freaking devastated. Anyway, so did you know who her dad was? Do you know who? So, lived, okay, did, at that point, at that moment, did you know who she was? Great question. I had to think about this, and I I do remember understanding pretty quickly that her dad was the guy from Aerosmith, and it didn't take me long to see the video at some point. And then be really, you know, because she's very, she's very pristine and pure in that thing you do. So great for a preacher's kid. Not so much in the video to crazy when she's running around with Alicia Silverstone. And I mean, that's a two for one special right there, right? Like I refer to a 14 year old boy, those two together. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure I, I can't even remember how I saw it. I think I must have been sneaking MTV in my grandparents' basement. This was a thing. Have we ever talked about this on the show? That like the only time I ever remember my grandfather yelling at me was the time he caught me watching MTV in his basement. <laughs> no, yeah. please tell, tell. No, don't tell me. Tell everyone. I was I Come was watching. On, Brian, tell me. I was yeah. watching the video to. It was a Smashing Pumpkin song. It may have even been scrambled. Like I wasn't watching scrambled porn. I was watching scrambled MTV. That says everything you need to know about me as a child. About your. Yeah, about your upbringing. Good lord! Uh, but okay. yeah, Literally. so he he yelled at me about that. But I kept going back. So uh, I, I, that may have been where I saw this video, and that may have been my whole reason for trying to watch MTV. I mean, like I don't even really remember, but I do know that at some point I saw that. But here's what when we when I got to thinking about this, I was like, why did I know who Aerosmith was to begin with? So when somebody said, "Hey, her dad's the lead singer of Aerosmith," why? Because I, I, you know, at 14, it doesn't seem like I should have really known yet. And then I remembered. And then I remembered why I knew all of this. And that is that in third grade, my best friend, Ben, who I hung out with this weekend, uh, gave me a copy of Alapalooza, the Weird Al Yankovic record, on cassette. And I, I don't know if you... We've talked about Weird Al on the show. Rock and Roll versus Parody. Early on in our history, it's a great episode. But... This record taught me so many things about pop culture, Murdoch. Uh, I sure I I really thought we were going to cocaine and the Toxic Twins, and we went to the freaking accordion. Thanks for make thanks for hurting my neck to wherever the uh, fuck so we're going. Let me explain to you. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Somebody, a kid who grows up in this in this bubble and doesn't have access to MTV, he's watching yeah, scrambled MTV. Like yeah. this is what I learned from this weird out. Al- cassette i learned what Lollapalooza was because he called it Alapalooza, so somebody had to explain that to me yeah. uh i learned two not one two chili pepper songs because he mashed them together for a parody about the flintstones uh yeah but dabba do now then i learned <laughs> i i literally learned when somebody talks about bran making you regular 
I think about learning that for the first time from the Weird Al song, which was an original, called Traffic Jam, where he says, I shouldn't have eaten that pack of brand muffins an hour and a half ago. Also, I learned most of the words to Bohemian Rhapsody because he did it as a polka on this album. I know, th- I know that. I remember that. And then I, I also learned about MacArthur's Park and how I was very confused as to why it was melting in the dark. Jurassic Park made way more sense to be melting down in the dark. I knew that from the movie, right? But someone had to explain, like maybe my dad had to explain to me that, oh, that's a joke because there was an old song. On that album, (laughs) better than any of that, was a parody of an Aerosmith song called Living in the Fridge. And to this day, I don't know the real lyrics of Living on the Edge. I just think they are, you can't stop that stuff from growing. Uh, (laughs) It's absolute silliness, right? But it was from this record that I learned that Aerosmith had a song called Living on the Edge. And then I, I think I heard Crying Crazy on the radio. And someone told me at elementary school or middle school, that there was a song called Eat the Rich, which for some reason seems scandalous. I, I learned that Aerosmith was relevant and important in 1993. Like, two, I didn't realize they'd already had, like, two comebacks. <laughs> like, like, I had no idea. They were cool as hell to me in 1993 with Get a Grip. Wow. And by the time you are, like, Alapalooza or wherever you are, I've seen them mm-hmm, mm-hmm. on the Sober Tour with Guns N' Roses opening. Oh, holy shit. My sister left the eight track of Aerosmith Rocks, and, ah. and that was the that was the only heavy record she left me. So she left me Fleetwood Mac and Goose Creek Symphony, and I had all these country records and all this shit, but she left that one record. Yeah. And that has nine songs on it. I think Sticky Fingers has nine songs on it. Can't compare those two records at all. Dude. But nope. I can listen to Aerosmith Rocks all the way through. It kind of helps if you've been drunk drink because it's not exactly like you know listening to a gospel record for god's <laughs> sakes it's i mean it's but there's sh- a song there's a song on there called nobody's fault i don't know if you're familiar with it brian i am not that not not only have t- has testament covered it but fucking vince neal covered it once <laughs> So that's that's my that's like the the immediate part. And then I lose them because their career goes to crap until like when I eventually see them and they go back out on tour. Well, so sober. this is funny because, yeah, we have the, we have the flip side experience with them. So I, I get them in the 90s. So I've already said get a grip. And then, of course, the record with Pink. I mean, I remember Pink being a top 40 radio hit when I was in high school. 
Uh, and so, you know, in Jaded, I loved Jaded. I thought that song was great. Oh, have you have you ever seen the YouTube clip of him playing it at the Bluebird Cafe in Nashville? No. Is it amazing? Oh, man. I'm putting it in the show notes. Okay. okay. Fuck yeah. So, listen, <laughs> he's, he's sitting around and there's like one other guy, I guess. And it's maybe he's the writer of the song. And he tells the story that I think it was Sony who said, um, yeah, there's not a hit on this record. Oh yeah. So yeah, we're yeah. going to, we're going to need one or we're going to, we're going to drop the record. Oh, wow. And that's, and so they wrote that song. Like that's so weird because that happens to people. But thinking about that happening to Aerosmith is really freaking weird. It's, it's so, so dude, weird. It's so good. Uh, yeah. Okay, so I it, sang that song today for no reason, <laughs> not even thinking about that we're going to be talking about it. So I, it, we, we we skipped over, you know, talking about Jaded. We totally skipped over. I don't want to miss a thing, which is fine. We can leave that song alone. Uh, but I prefer his version in Home Depot. If you haven't seen that on YouTube. <laughs> I feel bad, man. It sucks. Uh, Addiction sucks. Addiction's bad, and we're going to talk about that. Here's the thing I didn't know, right? So I didn't know as a 14-year-old when I discovered that I was in love with Liv Tyler. I did not realize that she didn't realize her parentage for a long time. What I really didn't know for a long time was that the other man was also a rock star. And so this unpacks a crazy story about two rock stars and a Playboy Playmate, and the actual life they created together in Liv Tyler, but also the lives they lived together in the 70s. So are you ready for this? Yes, ladies and germs, <laughs> it's the rock and roll show you all came for and hit play several minutes ago to listen in your earbuds. The rumor, the innuendo sitting in from Maury Povich is my host, Brian. Okay, so... There are three adults. I didn't want to say who's your dad or whatever. That's just so weird. <laughs> anyway, this story is so awesome uh, and so much fun because it's so weird and such a rock and roll story. Louder Than Life, the biggest rock festival in America, is back with the loudest lineup ever. Foo Fighters. Green Day. Tool. Avenged Sevenfold. Godsmack. Pantera. Queens of the Stone Age. Limp Bizkit. 
Plus, Weezer, Megadeth, Turnstile, Rancid, Falling in Reverse, 311, Pierce the Veil, Run the Jewels, Corey Taylor, Coheated Cambria, and so many more. 100 bands over four days in Louisville, Kentucky, September 21st through the 24th. Get your passes on sale now at LouderThanLifeFestival.com. Foo Fighters, Green Day, Tool, Avenged Sevenfold, Godsmack, and more. The biggest rock festival in America. Louder Than Life. Three key adults we need to talk about. Uh, Steven Tyler is one of them. But let's let's start with the woman at the center of all this, and that is Liv Tyler's mother, B.B. Uh, Buell. Uh, tell me what you know about B.B. Buell. It's, it's probably not appropriate to say groupie anymore, is it? Right? So she would rather you not. Uh, She's also an artist, so we should talk uh-huh, about that. Uh-huh. We'll talk right? about that. So yeah. mo- most folks will recall her, if they know who she is, uh, as a model and a playboy. She was uh, a she was a playmate. Centerfold, yeah, 1974. Yeah. Uh, and they will likely mention the fact that she is the mother of Liv Tyler. But, uh, you know, B.B. Buell is a really interesting character in rock history. She she makes a couple of cameo appearances that we'll get to later uh, that do actually sort of affect rock and roll in in, in a notable way. Uh, right, yeah. And she's put out records. She's put out a and record. books. And, and yeah. like she's got two books, which are very yeah. hard to find and very expensive if you do find them. Uh, but... Before we get there, for any of that to make sense, we've got to get to her origin story. Right. And the the origin story for her is to put it all together with Liv Tyler. And now we've like we have this whole thing with Steven Tyler is that she was the inspiration for Penny Lane that for the Cameron Crowe wrote in Almost Famous. Okay, so it depends on what you read. I think Cameron Crowe has said that Penny is a composite and that BB might be part of the cocktail there. But it's not a one-to-one, according to things that I've read. But I, I don't know. I think you have this. Do you have a list of the, of the, the fellas from the rock and roll scene that BB has been associated with at some point over the years? Uh, Steven Tyler, for sure. Jagger, Iggy, David Bowie, Todd Rundgren, Jimmy Page, uh, John Taylor. That's all I can think of uh, at the moment. I mean, the only yeah, one I think you missed that popularly gets cited is Elvis Costello. Oh yeah, sorry, I forgot about the nerdy guy. Way well, to go, Elvis! I mean, you did you did point something out. A lot of people who are one name monikers, right? Uh, Jagger or Mick, you can just call him that. Iggy, uh, Bowie, uh, Elvis, Todd, Todd, Page, <laughs> Page, um, John. Yeah, you probably you probably do need the John Taylor and the Duran Duran. Um, it is funny that when you see a list of those people, like they always put Duran Duran next to John Taylor's name. Everybody else is just standalone. Uh, but. But you know what, John Taylor, I, I'm going to go ahead and say it. Put it up against all those guys. The hottest one up there. Well, except for the fact that Iggy's 78 or however old he is. W- one of these musical cameos we're going to get to that that BB is a big part of involves John Taylor. So we'll we'll tag that at the end. So, but uh, let's go back to her beginnings before we get to the end. This all starts when she gets close to graduating high school, and I actually heard her say that her mother just sort of decided eh, she's probably not college material, and so. She looks at her and thinks she's pretty beautiful. And she takes her yearbook photo and she sends it to the Eileen Ford Modeling Agency in New York City, which seems like a long shot, right? Doesn't seem like, you know, just, hey, mom, sent my picture to one of the biggest modeling agencies in the world. That's going to pan out. But it does. By her 18th birthday, she is living on 72nd Street in New York City at a place called the St. Mary's Woman Residence. And when you hear an interview with BB, she will bring this place up because this is the place where 
there's a whole bunch of women like trying to make it in New York. I, I like I didn't think about this being a thing, but I guess it was. This is almost like a like a boarding house, right? So these women come to the city and they're trying to get their stab at whatever, and they end up all staying at this place and getting to know each other. And she says she didn't fit in super great at this place, but there was a, enough camaraderie that they would you know hang out some and meet people. And at some point, the girls started hanging out with this guy who literally in the stories I, I hear, he doesn't get a last name. They just call him Richard. But he he's a gay gentleman who takes them around to the arts and to do stuff in New York City, right? And a lot of these girls are coming from all over the country, and it's their first big taste in New York. So he's he's an important figure. They spend a lot of time with him. And, and so one night, when she's 18 years old, BB is going to see Man of La Mancha with this guy, Richard. And he says on the way, Oh, I got to drop something off at my buddy's house. Just hold on. We're going to take a slight detour here. And they they pull off and end up at Todd Rundgren's place. Ooh, can I talk about Todd Rundgren? Yeah. Can I do it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Let, let's <laughs> let's set uh, who this guy is. I think this is the one character in this story, but there's going to be some people listening who are like, I know the name, but I don't know the songs and the history. So hit us with it. Yeah, yeah. And he had a band called the Naz. And no one heard them, and that's a, a like a big, huge uh, thing for them. So, and before we like get there, he grew up in Philadelphia. That's uh-huh. where he was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was in a band, and then he created the the Naz. And there's this amazing story. So, what what Todd eventually becomes known for is being a producer, like this amazing, gifted producer. And there's this this story, whether it's real or not, that. They make this record and he had no experience as a producer engineer. And then he remixed it and produced it himself after the producer like gave them yeah. just a couple of days to finish like it. Like the and producer left. Like the producer's like, right. I'm done. And then Todd. And so he he finishes Yeah, it. he bribes yeah. the engineer to let him back in or the engineer just doesn't care. And he lets Todd back in and Todd just like messes with all of it. Yeah. And so people think that he's this genius. And thank God for Lenny Kay from the Patty Smith group who put together the Nuggets double LP in 72 and then the Nuggets box set. And people got to find out about about Naz because it's like super cool psychedelic stuff late 60s 68 so open my eyes is the single and so the song that people know that they forget about todd rundgren is hello it's me uh, like that's yeah. that's that's on the b side of the nas song that people know that's that's open my eyes and they do a couple of records it's like zeppelin there's a nas 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 comes out in 69 <laughs> and have nas 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 i wish it's it's nas three yeah 71 think about how those are just like zeppelin yeah, that is funny. Uh, well, and, and here's the thing, though. Here's how they're not like Zeppelin. So there's really like one real Nas record because, yeah. uh, again, we talk about this all the time about how fast bands are forced to put material out in this in the late 70s and early 80s. And it, like Rundgren gets sort of like, I think, restless and in his own head. And you see this early in his career with some of the choices he makes. And it's said that he hears like after they do the first Naz record, he hears Lauren Nairo. And I don't like, we've never talked about Lauren Nairo on the show. Maybe we should just do like a, let's talk about Lauren Nairo episode because she has this huge legacy in pop music, but like people don't know who she is or was. No, it's yeah. She's, she's one of those people that we probably should talk about. Well, and it's fascinating to me that this man who was like, had made blues records like the one of the bands he was in that you you taught you mentioned right like he bands early on was like trying to be like the blues breakers right so he had he had been in these blues bands and he got bored because he wanted to do things that were more challenging to him and to his 
interest in, and, you know, try all these other things. So he hears Laura Nairo and just gets like obsessed with trying to sound like her. And if you, we're going to talk about Runt in a minute, but if you listen to Runt, it is Rundgren trying to make a Laura Nairo record, which is just so funny because it's like so much more well-known than Laura Nairo record now. Eventually he, he finds himself without a band. So that's how he starts producing. And then, oh yeah, he runs into Albert Grossman. There's a crazy oh, shady manager. Shady manager alert. Shady manager alert. Um, <laughs> Grossman said that Rundgren would be like the highest paid producer in the world. And it came, I mean, he it was. came like it Rundgren happened. was, was an incredibly successful producer and he got to produce the freaking band. Oh yeah. Um, and he, and him and Joplin didn't get along and he was going to produce Pearl and then that that fell through which makes makes me kind of like do you not like smiles and puppy dogs like how do you not get along <laughs> unless like at that point Joplin was I mean, difficult to work I, with I think she I was a big personality and had a lot of demons but yeah one of one of Rundgren's big production accomplishments is Bad Out of Hell right so Rundgren touches a lot of rock history and you you might be surprised if you go look at the list of things that he's produced that this is the guy that was behind the board so yeah I mean Pearl would have been a, an amazing thing to be on that CV, but it, it didn't happen. Here's what he realizes, though, pretty quickly, is that he still has the performance bug. I think he thought he didn't when he when he got into producing because he had so much fun messing with um, that first record that he worked on. Uh, but he decides that you know he's got a little bit of leverage, so he goes to Grossman and says, listen, I want to make a solo record, and I'll make you a deal. I don't need an advance. If you'll just make sure I don't have to pay for the studio... Let me just try this and see what happens. Um, and so he he goes on and creates uh, this record that I just mentioned called Runt. Right. He didn't really put his name on it because he was nervous he, about he's it. He's an interesting character because he is so in his head. Like you can tell that he is, it's almost, it's so smart that he can't quite figure out how he feels about himself. And so even though he wants to put these songs into the world, he doesn't necessarily want them to be associated with him. Uh, so it's, yeah. it's really funny. Did, did you ever get we, into that record run? No, I didn't. It was that for me, what happened was I just knew him from classic rock radio. And then I got into the NAS and then I had to go like and discover the, the catalog. But I happen to have a really soft spot for, for the NAS. That's like what I, what I like of his, his work. I mean, we can talk about the records he produced. Runt is really interesting because he actually records it with a sibling duo who are teenagers. <laughs> so he's oh, not that's that old. Right. That, how old? They're 17 and 14 or 17 something. 17 and, and 14. They'll go on and, and work with like, like I want to say Bowie and I, I mean, they, they the Sales Brothers end up having a, a nice little resume uh, in rock and roll. But yeah, the Rundgren pulls them in when they're like in junior high and high school. Uh, yeah, which is crazy. And, and that I will say, I was never super familiar with Runt, but I, when re doing research, was like, well, I better blast this album. And uh, it's delightful. Leroy, boy, is that you? I thought your post-hanging days were through. Sunken eyes and full of sighs. Tell no lies. You get wise. I tell you now we're gonna pull you through There's only one thing left that we can do We gotta get you a woman It's like nothing else can make you destroy your life We gotta get it, you it, a it's, woman It's really nice if you've not heard it. We gotta get you a woman. That's the song that does... Uh, uh, makes enough noise on rock radio um, 
to sort of catch people's attention. And then something happens. So he does this album. And then and the critics, the critics like this kind of mix, like now Rungren's considered a genius. So yeah. that record's considered to be a little different now. Yeah. Well, and then the second one really has critics sort of divided because he, he finds drugs in between Runt and the second album that he makes. And so things get, I mean, he was already experimental and sort of thinking outside the box. And now with a little help from chemicals, it gets real outside the box. Uh, 1971, the ballad of Todd Rundgren. That's the second record. It has two uh, big singles, be nice to me and a long time, a long way to go. And neither of them do super great. He, like you already said, he's very highly regarded later. And it's this, this is where they meet, right? Yeah. So, so this right is here. This is 71. Right. So this is what he's been doing. He's got these two records out. Um, so he's somewhat known. He's not a giant star, but people kind of know him. I did. I did hear an interview with BB where she says that they go to this house with Richard. They are very impressed with each other, BB and Todd. Um, and and it's something starts up pretty quickly, but when they get back in the car, she said that, Richard pulled out a copy of Rolling Stone that he had in the car and was like, do you realize that Todd's like sort of a big deal? And then she says that she was like, I realized then that I didn't really know what he was working on then, but I, I was into the Nas. Wow. That, you know, by 71, he'd produced a Badfinger record. Yeah. Like in some ways for some people who are listening right now, he kind of produced a Beatles record. I mean, yeah, yeah, kinda, yeah, 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 for sure. You know, I mean, like he, t- he touched something really, miraculous that like burnt out yeah. on all of us. Unfortunately, that's another one on the short list of upcoming episodes we need to do is I've, I've had bad finger. I honestly shoved them to the back for a while because we had done so much about the Beatles. I thought we needed a break, but we've got to do a bad finger episode. Yeah. So this is a pretty significant relationship to BB uh, and to Todd. Um, it will last for six years. He's got five years on her. So he's like 23, 24. She's 18. So this is brand new to her. And, this is her first serious boyfriend. Um, and and she will claim her first sexual partner. So and, and so the groupie thing, this is different. Like it, yeah. the narratives. Well, and I think this is why she's always so hesitant to take that title on, right? Because she came into the scene as Todd's girlfriend. Like this wasn't a, I'm trying to get right. into the, the music scene necessarily. You'll read that narrative. But I really think from what I've read about it, it's like, you know, yeah, she's a model and she's finding interesting people to hang out with. Sure. But, she met a guy who she really liked and she spent six years with him. Now that's a little misleading because a couple of years into that relationship, the two of them realize that maybe it's not their lifestyles are, are not really conducive for staying super faithful. So they decide to have, you know, this is after the summer of love, uh, an open relationship. So that's how you get. <laughs> yeah. You want to read that? You want to read that lineup j- again of that group? Jag- Jagger, Iggy, Bowie, Todd Rundgren, Steven Tyler, Jimmy Page. Think about the lifestyle, right? Todd's out producing and touring. And so there's like a practicality with this. And there's this podcast. It's in the show notes uh, that featured an interview with baby, which is really good. Um, I mean, she clearly likes to talk about this stuff, but she's got a lot of fun stories. She will mention that her relationship with Jagger starts during a time that Todd is on the road. And this is also how a relationship with a guy who's coming up in the world of rock and is 
kind of a big name in the neighborhoods in New York, Steven Tyler. This is how her relationship with him starts. You want to just lay the foundation for where we are in Aerosmith's career at this point? This is 75-ish. Yeah, I'll put on my nerd rock and roll glasses. Uh, so their first gig was in Minden, Massachusetts. It was at a, a high school that's now called Misco Hill Middle School. That was in November 6, 1970. Damn. And they signed with Columbia in 72 because of Clive Davis. So Clive sees them at Max's Kansas city and gives them a 125 K advance. And they have the uh, self-titled debut uh, and then get your wings is 74 toys in the attic, 75. And then there's a connection with Rundgren because Jack Douglas was Todd Rundgren's audio engineer. Oh, holy so that's shit. How, really? Yeah. They, yeah. They so did the dolls record together, right? Right. Yes. So in 73, Todd oh Rundgren God, that's amazing. got to produce the New York Dolls record. Holy shit. Which, which for frick's sake, who produced the first Kiss record? Tick tock, tick tock. Can't name them, can you? But that's a real big freaking deal. And yeah. I think that people are going to look back on that first Dolls record more so than they'll look at any of these Kiss records, right? Yeah. <laughs> And so, but Aerosmith at, at, at this point was getting to be bigger and bigger, you know, in the late seventies and then they crashed. Um, and then I just happened to be where I got to see them on the way back up where they had their own five separate tour buses so that they couldn't be together when they were touring. So they wouldn't do drugs. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's, this becomes a key part of this story, right? This, this whole thing about, how many drugs they were doing in the mid seventies. But before we get to that rocks off mag has this great piece on BB that we put in the show notes and they recap the meet cute between Steven and BB this way. Uh, quote the image BB Buell uh, paints of her first encounter with Aerosmith frontman Steven Tyler is almost like something out of a movie, an outdoor concert ruined by a rainstorm. Steven bounding towards her like some chivalrous hero to lift her out of the mud. And then they say it's a nice image and it's romantic, but like so many stories from wild rock and roll days, it's a little larger than life and a little hard to credit. <laughs> Did you, have you ever heard the story about her rescuing Steven Tyler from a drug party? Oh like he God. was just really, like really hammered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so she had to get him like out of a fire escape or, or something. Like it's, you know, was it true? I don't know, man, but that's like well, certainly a thing. I'm glad that, you brought it up because true. as we've already stated about the tour buses later in the 80s, uh, they they get into so many drugs. And if you if you know anything about Aerosmith in the 70s, you know that they were the shock, the drugs were riding shotgun all the damn time. And this is a key part of the story. So just keep a bookmark here because Steven on drugs becomes a rationalization for some of the things that happens that happen later. But the real drama we came to, we came here for today. is about when this pair, Steven and BB in 1976, it's the summertime and they get this romantic inkling to run off to Europe together. The two of them and they come home. The three of them. 
holy shit. Yeah, at, at least in utero. Uh, this is when this is assumed to have happened, right? So I, I feel like a pregnancy is a real test of an open relationship. Yeah, considering <laughs> the last seven open relationships I've been in, when we discussed, oh, sorry. Yeah, I mean, uh, it pretty much, like, for me, it's like, I don't know, man. I have a I have a pal that grew up, Oh my gosh. And I'm not just going to out him or anything. I have a pal that grew up in a kind of a similar like upbringing as you okay, and, and was married and got married uh, with someone who kind of had a simpler, up, similar upbringing or whatever, but like, you know, it's a little different, whatever. And they broke up. Um, and, and now he dates a, he's like a lead singer in a funk band and they have an open relationship. Well, you and know, you typically I can't, go way far the other direction. That's usually typically how it works. It was, it is the most way farest ever. And it is so fantastically awesome to have the two <laughs> things transposed. But yes, a pregnancy has to be the real test of an open relationship. Yeah. Depending on what you read, there are sort of two versions of what happens next. So one of them is that BB doesn't tell Todd that the baby is not his. Sometimes you'll read that she does, and he agrees to just go along with it. So I don't know 100% uh, which way it happens, but Todd does sign the birth certificate. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. and So that so that's how we have the who's, who's really the father thing, because that's, that's dad. Right. And so uh, he will sign the birth certificate. He will continue to take care of her and give her financial support. But here's the thing. So this isn't that big a deal, right? I mean, it is, but it isn't. Bibi will say that the reason she didn't bring Steven into the equation was because of the drugs. That's why that's a key part of this. He's so whacked out on drugs, he's in no position to be a father. And so she turns to Todd. Todd says, sure, let's raise this kid together. They don't end up lasting very much longer. Um, surprise, surprise. But he will stay in Liv's life and be her father figure. Now, here's where the fun part of this story comes in. How does Liv find out? So do you know this? No, no, no. So this must have been a big deal. This becomes part of the lore for this whole thing, right? So th- the story is that she goes to a Rundgren concert with BB when she's, depending on what you read, 9 or 11. Fine, let's call it 10. So she's roughly 10, which is like, what, fourth grade? And she goes yeah. to this concert, and she and they bump into Steven Tyler. He's sitting at the bar. And he buys her a Shirley Temple, and they get along. I mean, she will later call it falling madly in love with him. She has posters of him on on her wall. Uh, It's it's all very strange. Here's a quote. It was a moment that was bigger than me, she told the Guardian. It was almost spiritual. When you meet Ken, there's an energy and sparkle between your bodies. It must be chemical somehow, DNA and genes. I felt a connection in a very strong way when I met him as a little girl, and I didn't know why at first, but I figured it out rather quickly. So, again, the folklore version of this story is that she, like, goes to an Aero... Like, I heard it this way. She goes to an Aerosmith concert and sees him on stage and thinks, we look alike. Or she has a poster out of a magazine and is like, I look like him. As I dug a little deeper, this version of the story makes a little more sense. So, I think she starts to think, because they do sort of look alike, uh, that they might have some sort of connection. And I mean, I think at this point she knows what the gig is with her mom, right? Because her mom has had this open relationship and she's clearly 
had you know there's been all these other guys even if even if she's not actively in a relationship with these other guys i'm sure they're like hanging out and around right because this is just the friends that they have so i don't think it's weird for her to think like oh mom might have had a relationship with this guy or that guy the giveaway she will say now is that she sees steven's other daughter and and you know they're from two different women so they're very close in age uh serinda fox who was born just a year after Liv. so Liv is is watching a Stephen perform and on the side of the stage she sees the other daughter quote it was literally like looking at my twin she recalled and so because of that she actually goes to to bb and says what's up with this they admit that it's true and she i mean the story goes she's kept a relationship into adulthood with both of them and still yeah very, very uh, affectionate and loving towards Todd Rundgren and has a has a great relationship with him. And I've always heard that Todd Rundgren's like a, just a straight up guy. So I mean, um, I gotta say, anybody that's like, I'll sign the birth certificate and raise this kid as my own because the yeah, dad's sure. in bad shape. Like, how bad can that guy yeah. be? No, can't be. No, you get a pass. But you know, this isn't really where the story ends, right? Because. If we keep the focus on BB, her life is fascinating. So we're only at 70, at Liv's born in 77. So we're only in the late 70s at this point. BB has aspirations to do music herself. And she starts hanging out through Todd, meets Rick Derringer, and starts hanging out with Rick Derringer's wife. In the early 80s, she will record a covers EP. Rick Derringer produces it. And her backing band on two of the four songs, the fucking cars. That's pretty cool. Then she goes on to form a band. She starts dating the dude from Duran Duran. They decide to form a band together. This is where I told you she has a cameo in, in rock and roll history that's pretty interesting. So he decides to make it a bit of a super group and invite some other friends of his. And then somewhere in the formation of this, it starts to fall apart. And BB is not involved anymore. And so to replace BB. He calls Robert Palmer, and that is how you get Power Station. Oh my gosh. That's BB so Buell weird. was the lead singer of Power Station. Can you believe the biggest T Rex song was when people covered the T Rex song? Oh man. Ah! What a shame. And the rock and roll history for, for BB continues. She'll have a band called the Gargoyles in 85. And at the beginning of the 90s, they'll get a big record deal dangled in front of them. And at this point, Bibby's got a 13-year-old girl, and she's a little concerned about what's going to have to happen as far as touring. And then right in this moment is when the story breaks publicly in the media, Liv Rundgren's dad may not be a Rundgren at all. And yeah. this has, you know, it's, it's funny to think about this 30 years on, but this has like severe implications for her and her career she will actually sit out 
for six years and and not do anything because of the public scrutiny that she comes under from gosh this revelation yeah stinks and in the meantime this is when a young brian learns about aerosmith and then learns about that beautiful girl that uh bb and steven tyler made together (laughs) (laughs) x-rated uh wait what would you say is your all-time favorite aerosmith song ah it's so hard the old songs, it's nobody's fault, but the new songs, I like Magic Touch. It's the second track on Permanent Vacation. I like how you have the categories defined as to what is old and what is new. And Oh, yeah, because if you get like Aerosmith's greatest hits and you look at it and it's like, yeah, there is there is nothing on here before <laughs> permanent vacation. There's no songs. If you want to get involved in the show, send an email to wearethestoryguys at gmail.com or check us out on the web. It is wearethestoryguys.com. And on Instagram, you can find us at backslash oh, rock and roll bedtime stories. And on Patreon, it's backslash rock and roll bedtime stories. Give us some cash and get some bonus episodes and bonus content. Uh, until next time, what should people keep doing, Mark? Keep telling stories. It's raining.